Nirvana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, we don't have much racing, but it's all about you, the listeners, and your questions. And as always, we've got some good ones. But let's start how we always do. This is episode 54 of Positive Regression. This is the Jimmy Pardue edition. Jimmy Pardue, an early driver from the late 50s, early 60s, from North Wilkesboro. Uh, David, the first thing that stood out, only because we talked about it last week on our Irrational Thoughts episode, he had seasons where he raced 44 times, 52 times, and 50 times. I think we should be racing 50 or more times. So this was like a throwback to me, way back looking at Jimmy Pardue. Yeah, it was almost a testament to your uh, your change there, your irrational change. I have a very long season. And, uh, you know, looking at his career, this was pretty interesting. He won two races, both of them driving the number 54. He won at Richmond in 1962 and then at Dog Track Speedway yeah. in Moyoc, North Carolina in 1963. He finished six in points uh, that year in 1963, and his career sort of crescendoed into the 1964 season. He brought his car number 54 to Burton Robinson Racing, and as you mentioned, this his schedule for this season was dizzying. It was a 62 race schedule up from 55 the previous season. And in 1964, through his first 50 starts, he didn't win a race, but he earned 14 top five finishes and 24 top 10 finishes in 50 starts. He also had 26 DNFs due to mechanical problems. And Alan, if we omitted those mechanical DNFs, his average finish in those first 50 starts drops from 11.4 to 7.4. And Alan Richard Petty won that year's championship with an average finish of 7.3. Uh, Richard Petty had 10 less mechanical DNFs. Uh, this was the high attrition era of NASCAR. But even during this era, Jimmy Pardue had a high number of mechanical DNFs relative to his peers. His last race was on September 20th of that year. And unfortunately, two days later, he took part in a Goodyear tire test at Charlotte Motor Speedway. A tire blew and he crashed and he was killed as a result of the crash. Uh, he was only 33 at the time of his death, and his results were ascending. Uh, Alan, it's it's sort of a what if. It, it would have been tough to outrun Richard Petty and Ned Jarrett during this era. Uh, those guys, legends in their own right, but they had reliable equipment and uh, and that elite speed that every racer chases. Uh, Pardue did not, but assuming he would have kept improving until at least his early 40s, as we know NASCAR drivers typically do on average, it's fair to say the sport missed out on certainly more wins from uh, from Pardue, but perhaps also his best shot at a championship run, because we've talked about that uh, in episodes past. Richard Petty won a lot of championships, didn't actually have a lot of full-time contenders he had to, had to outrace, 
uh, Jimmy Pardue was, uh, was, you know, tallying 50 plus starts every year. He could have been one of those guys. Yeah. And, you know, I said it last week, but just doing a quick Google search on some of these old timers, it, it's been fun just to learn a lot uh, about who these guys were and what they were doing and, and the conditions that they raced in. You know, even back then, you mentioned it, David, uh, you know, the, the difference between Richard Petty and a Jimmy Pardue, largely money and equipment, right? I mean, and it's always been that way, it seems, in racing. Uh, Kyle Petty was on Dale Jr.'s uh, podcast not long ago and was just explaining how back then that error was make it to 75 to go. Make it to 75 mm-hmm. to go or what have you, and then start racing, right? And then start running uh, for the end and your position. That was the name of the game, whether that be talent or money or, you know, standard of equipment. But uh, there there were the haves and have-nots. And uh, it's fun to look back on, on these old-timer names like Jimmy Pardue and and wonder, you know, what kind of equipment or what difference it may have had for uh, a guy like that. And, and again, seeing how well they raced and seeing how many times they raced. David, in the in the season of his death, he still finished fifth in points. Just yeah. to show you the weird system they had back then. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you talked about the uh, equipment. He, he was being noticed. Uh, Holman Moody put him in a car for a race in 1963, but... If you think back to that, that legendary Holman Moody team, they were fielding cars for Fred Lorenzen and Fireball Roberts. And if you do a quick stat search, you'll see a name, Ken Miles, who Christian Bale just played in the oh, movie yeah. Ford versus Ferrari. Um, Holman Moody had their pick of, of whatever driver outside of Richard Petty they could get. And, and he was in that conversation. And, and, you know, we, we can't really tell if he had kept going, would he have been plucked? by a better team and then probably would have been able to compete for a championship more properly. Good stuff. A good old boy. North Wilkesboro. First thing that popped up when I saw it, I was like, ah, a driver from North Wilkesboro. How cool is that? So episode 54 dedicated to Jimmy Pardue. All right, let's get this episode started because you asked the questions and we're going to answer them. First of all, we appreciate you. Uh, David always literally sends out the bat signal on Twitter and uh, people answer and they come up with some good questions. So this is our Q&A episode of Positive Regression. Uh, so let's get to it, David. Uh, first question up is from Justin Hauser on Twitter. He writes, my first race was the Pop Secret 400 in 2001. Joe Nemechek lapped all but nine cars. And the top five featured such luminaries as Kenny Wallace, Johnny Benson, and Jerry Nadeau. What are your thoughts on running orders that were so skewed from the norm? David, I'll let you start off with this one because uh, I, I love little trivia things like this, thinking back on on odd types of races. And uh, this is one of them. I mean, not that Joe Nemechek didn't earn it and well earned and he won you know, plenty of races in his career. But, uh, you know, just little little pieces of trivia like this when an odd top five. Yes, and this was such an interesting race that Justin brought to our attention. And because 2001 was such a weird year, there were there were a lot of strange races. But Alan, I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't view this as as a fluke race because the results. Uh, actually speak to how the race bore out for the most part. So, so let's take Joe Nemechek. He was the winner. He led 196 laps on the day. Kenny Wallace, who finished second, started on the pole and led 101 laps. And this was the car Steve Park won at Rockingham with earlier that season. 
And the starting lineup consisted of an interesting top seven that included Kenny Wallace, Ricky Craven, Casey Atwood, Jerry Nadeau, Bobby Hamilton, Dave Blaney, and Dick Trickle driving the Dave Marcus number 71. That was the best starting spot for a Dave Marcus car in over four years. So this race at Rockingham, and I, I agree, it was wild. Uh, it, it was a, it was a win. Uh, Nemechek was an Andy Petrie Racing's number 33 car. It was, uh, the second of two Cup Series wins as a car owner for Andy Petrie. They both came in 2001. The other was Bobby Hamilton at Talladega. So if you wanted to argue both of Andy Petrie's wins were flukes, I think you can make a solid case out of that. But, I don't know how you feel about this because within the context of the weekend and the race, this all made sense. There was not a big crash. There were actually only two cautions in the race. Yeah, that's and what I think we should get to. Yeah, and there wasn't some bizarre fuel mileage turn. So I, I would actually argue like, yeah, strange drivers at the front, but like the results make sense when you actually consider the race. This is, uh, I hate to, I mean, I'm, I, I still feel young, but this is, it's old school at this point, right? Because look, if you haven't been following NASCAR for a long time, there, there, there was a time before stage breaks, right? There was a time when, when, there were cautions or there would be long stretches without cautions. And not too long ago, this race, David, had green flag runs of 170 and 206 laps. That one ended the race. <laughs> 206 laps. Now, when you don't have the stage breaks that they do now, that means cars are naturally going to get lapped because the faster cars are just going to keep, you know, doing their thing. So the difference is just going to get more and more prevalent, if you will. And then there were no wave around. So when there was a caution, everybody who got trapped a lap down, you can't just suddenly get your lap back like you can now. So this is how races used to go. Young, young kiddos listening to this podcast. Uh, sometimes this would happen. If there weren't a bunch of cautions, like there weren't in this race, the leader would start lapping cars at a clip. And at one point in this race, David, the caution did come out at, in the middle of green flag pit cycles, which means if you were on pit road, you got lapped. And if it would have played its way out naturally during the green flag, you would get your lap back. But the caution came out. And back then, there was no way to just magically wave yourself around and get it back. So you got trapped a lap down. And that's races like these with the long green flags. They would lend themselves to nine cars on the lead lap. And, and sometimes maybe some odd names. But as you pointed out, David, I mean, given the, the context of the weekend, I mean, there, there was reason why these guys were up front. Yeah. Kenny Wallace was in a Dale Earnhardt Incorporated car, right? Like it, it may have been the best equipment he ever had at his disposal. He was good at Rockingham and it sort of all came together that day. I know that he talks about the time that he pushed Dale Earnhardt to Dale's last ever win at Talladega is, is one of the marquee moments for his career. But I would argue it was this day at Rockingham when he won the pole and he, he, I mean, he had heat and, and apparently so did Joe Nemechek because out front he was untouchable. And I, you know, I think about races like this, races with maybe, you know, first time winners or only time winners and odd results. And one that popped into my mind was 2011 Daytona 500 Trevor Bain wins yep. the race. And there, there are sticklers out there that say, Oh, well, that was, he, that was just a fluke win. And I agree that that race was an aberration within his entire career. But 
if you consider that week, he was a factor in his dual race. Uh, Jeff Gordon made a big deal. It said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I like drafting with this kid. I'm going to work with him on race day. And then race day comes and the Wood Brothers number 21 car was the fastest car in the race per timing and scoring data. And Trevor Bain won it. And when you consider some of those things, his victory makes a lot of sense given how that, how that race broke. So I don't view the win as a fluke. I view that one day and that one data point as an aberration, but it doesn't take anything away from the win because yeah, the, the, the Wood Brothers team showed up and showed up to Daytona and, and brought a car that could win and Trevor Bain closed the deal. By far my favorite top, uh, top odd at five if that makes sense, odd, odd finish, if you will, is, uh, the 2007 Coca-Cola 600. I think we've mentioned it before, David, but I think, I mean, this race deserves its own 30 for 30 when you look back on it, because (laughs) the, the, the rundown, the top five for the Coca-Cola 600 in 2007, Casey Mears, his first and only win, JJ Yaley in second, Kyle Petty in third, Reed Sorensen in fourth, and Brian Vickers in his Red Bull car, early on Red Bull car, mind you, was fifth. And that was a fuel mileage race that came down to the end. But uh, still, when you talk about memorable or just uh, noteworthy uh, asterisk, if you will, top fives in yeah. history, I mean, that is a that is a strange one that you're, you're going to look back on one day and be like, well, what is happening? Because Kyle Petty, not in his prime when that was happening, uh, certainly not J.J. Yaley, Casey Mears in a Hendrick car. Uh, but, you know, that's the only race he ever won. And then Reed Sorensen and Brian Vickers, again, an early Red Bull car. I know he went on to win later, but those early Red Bull cars were having trouble making races. Yeah, and, and Vickers led uh, quite a few laps in that race, but that top four combined to lead seven out of 400 <laughs> laps. So when we, we talk about a fluke within the context of the race, this one was a fluke. I Yeah, I, I don't think you can argue. I, I mean, if... You know, some races are going to break unexpectedly, right? That's how uh fluke results are created. It's going to be fuel mileage goes wonky and in a different direction, or there's a big crash, or weather uh plays a huge factor, right? We get Justin Haley winning at Daytona, something like that. Chris Busher in the um, fog. Chris Busher in the fog, yes. And this this race was total fuel mileage, and, and Alan, I found another one that also came from 2001, uh, at Homestead, Bill Elliott won the race. Michael Waldrop finished second. And, uh, in that year, by the way, in the three races in Florida, Michael Waldrop averaged a finish of 1.67. Hmm. Um, Pretty good. K- Casey Atwood finished third, and he almost won the race. He was passed by Elliott with five laps to go. Dave Blaney finished sixth. And Jason Leffler finished 10th. That was the only top 10 finish of Leffler's career. Uh, and then Elliott winning, he was driving for Everham Motorsports at the time, but that win was a big deal because it was his first win in over seven years. And that win helped kickstart the Bill Elliott renaissance that he had later in his career where he was competing for wins and he ultimately won a Brickyard 400. Yeah, yeah. Over um, Rusty. But, Move on. <laughs> but... Yeah, it it was it is kind of fun going back and and looking at some of the re- results and trying to figure out how did these come to be exactly and yeah yeah you're gonna you're gonna see some real fluky uh, finishing orders from time to time uh, so it, it was a it was a treat that Justin brought this up. 
Yeah. Hey, a lot of you have time on your hands out there. We're going through something as a country. So if you, uh, if you happen to have one of your own fluky finishes, uh, let us know on Twitter. I, I love hearing about these things and, uh, looking back on, on fun races like that. Next up from Joshua R9476 on Twitter. He writes, multi-class racing at road courses and some ovals. What is your take on letting the truck Xfinity and cup guys go at it at the same time? Obviously, pit space is an issue, but I feel like letting all the pole winners this year go at it on the clash, remember, it should be on a road course, is a good start. Uh, David, again, last week we talked about irrational ideas. <laughs> um, I get, this would have been a great one, a great one for that episode, at least I think. Um, I mean, immediately to me, I'll let you uh, weigh in on it. It sounds like something of a novelty. I know we see it in sports cars. That's what the 24 Hours of Daytona, if you're familiar with that. You see a bunch of different types of cars on the track at the same time racing each other by class and not necessarily, obviously, all the other cars on the road or on the track. And that's the kind of uh, example that they're trying to give in NASCAR. The trucks would be racing the trucks, Xfinity, et cetera. Uh, David, your initial thoughts. To me, it's just a novelty. I, I think we should consider whether NASCAR would allow in an Xfinity series car to win these races because we're talking different horsepowers. We're talking, we're talking different rule packages. Um, this might happen in that case. Better horsepower. Think AJ Allmendinger in a colleague racing car could just wax the field in a road course race. That would be <laughs> wild, but NASCAR can't let that happen, right? A cup car has to win the overall race. Um, that would be, that would be something. Um, I tell you what, uh, pit crew jobs would increase because you have, uh, a bunch of people moonlighting between the series. I know NASCAR is taking a big whack at that this year with, uh, the strict rules on truck series and Xfinity series standalones. But if they're all competing at the same time, then there's a need for more pit crew guys and we can find space. I've, I've never considered that to be an issue. If NASCAR wants to do something, they'll find a way to do it. Um, but that's one, uh, potential ramification. Alan, I, I, I mean, I have to ask because you are pit reporter extraordinaire for the truck series. Are you worried about, you know, Jamie Little and Vince Welch coming, uh, coming down into, onto your, your pit road territory in these multi-class races? Well, sure. I mean, uh, they, they have a lot more work to do. So hopefully they'd have us all down there, uh, because that'd be a huge field, wouldn't it? <laughs> There'd be a lot of, uh, cars and trucks to take care of. And that would be one of the, just one of the logistical things is, is just the, the personnel and knowledge and background that someone like myself would have to do. I mean, obviously it can be done. We're all professionals, but I hope they would, you know, give us a rotating breaks. Uh, I mean, again, is this an endurance race? Is this, uh, you know, we, we can add to this irrationality if we want to, you know, is, is this uh, just 20 laps, 50 laps on the, uh, on the road course at Daytona? I mean, there's a lot of details to be filled in here, but uh, again, you know, it's a fun, crazy idea. I don't think it's something we'll ever see in NASCAR, but you know, if you can appreciate it in sports cars, maybe you could appreciate it in NASCAR. I, I'm just not on that, on that list. Yeah, I, I prefer one contest for each series as well. Although I, I do enjoy sports car racing, uh, but with the different classes, sometimes there are really good battles in the classes that are less popular, right? Outside of, you know, the Daytona prototypes and GTs of the world. Um, they're really good battles for position that kind of just get lost. And with separate race events, they're, is at least a, a proper spotlight 
paid, right? Because you, you want to see the breakthrough truck series finish for a young driver or, um, an Xfinity series guy like a Ryan Sieger or Jeremy Clements getting a shock top five finish. That, that seems to go over very well among fans. And you kind of, you kind of miss that if you're focused, uh, more so on the cup guys because just because there's a bigger field doesn't mean everyone gets their just due. Uh, it actually pairs down. So I, I do appreciate watching a race and understanding what everyone is up to and doing because this is, this is hard stuff. They, they deserve the credit and I'm just curious, but you, you brought up a good point. I don't know that this is an endurance race, but do, do you change the mileage? Is it, I mean, do, does cup do, you know, in essence, a, a 300 mile road course race and 200 miles for Xfinity, 100 for trucks. I don't, are, are trucks built to go uh, a long distance? Now you're just know. confusing me. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Joshua, we appreciate the question, but, uh, I just don't know. Maybe you can keep, keep ringing the bell, banging the drum. We'll see what happens in the future. <laughs> Uh, next up from Jacob T. Gregory, a great, uh, hypothetical, uh, choose. You have to choose one of these, David. What would okay. increase a team's production more? You pick between these two things. A driver who could run the same lap speed every green lap of a run, negating tire fall off, or a crew chief with divine powers who is able to see exactly what lap every single caution happens the day before the race. I'll read that one more time. What would increase a team's production more? A driver who could run the same lap speed every green lap, negating tire fall off, or a crew chief who would basically know every time the caution's going to fly? This is a great question, David. Okay. So I'll, I'll take team production to just mean maybe, maybe what would a team like results choose, right? Like, uh, okay. What would get you so better results at the end? Yeah. So let's think about this. If in scenario A, if there is zero fall off in lap times on old tires, then when a driver pits, that holds no significance. Like that choice doesn't matter. You still have to get on and off pit road and there's still the pit stop itself. So there's, there's going to be some change, but it's not, you, you have removed an option from the table. So there is no jumping green flag pit strategy. That doesn't matter. So if you were a team with a bad pit strategist, this is probably the option that you would take. But even then, I don't know that teams would do this because if we think about the second scenario, like if there was a crew chief who could predict when cautions came out, then that seems to be an option that's being placed on the table. That's an increase in advantage. And that, that would be my pick because that strikes me as the thing that teams would choose. You take the new advantage over the eradication of a, a possible advantage. And I, I mean, you have, you have teams playing this game right now. When we, when we watch races and when we talk about good crew chiefs, gaining positions during green flag pit cycles, it's in part because they guessed correctly. They don't know when cautions are going to fall. I know that caution trends are talked about on the telecast and in terms of, uh, you know, just prognostication, but you don't, you don't know. 
So I would think if, if, if one crew chief, not the entire field, if one crew chief knew when each caution was going to fall and then plan accordingly, that has to be the massive advantage, right? That's where I'm leaning toward now. Uh, I'll admit I picked the incorrect choice earlier, apparently. <laughs> my, my first initial oh. thought. Well, no, my first initial thought was to go with the driver. I mean, the driver, in terms of just consistent speed and no fall off, it just made me think of Days of Thunder, David. Remember? <laughs> uh, remember when he gets on the radio and says, I'm not getting faster. Everyone else is just getting slower. If you have a driver that can go the same speed the whole time while everyone else is getting slower, I think that's really good. I mean, that's a good advantage to have especially consistent. And this is what was driving my thought process uh, initially. Here, I'll, I'll bring you through my mind. Now that we have stages, I feel like, at least initially, I felt that the need for strategy calls, the way the, way the races are broken up now with the stages, you, you know when everyone's going to get jumbled up again. You know when there's going to be a restart. Uh, you know, you can plan fuel mileage around those stage breaks that you already know are going to happen. And for me, I... I, my initial thought was that 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 takes away opportunities for a good strategist because um, there's fewer and fewer opportunities now with some of these runs about when to come in and when not because the races are already broken up by stages. So that swung for me the advantage back over to the driver if you can have a consistent driver for every lap. But as I talk with you, as I talked with some engineers uh, at various teams, they pointed out when you have these stages – if anything, it makes strategy calls ever more important because it brings the field back together at least twice per race. And therefore, any strategy call you can make now is even more important because everything is so equalized at different points during the race. So it was their claim that it makes strategy even more important. So if you were to know when the cautions were going to come out, it would be a hell of an advantage over the same lap times for a driver. So I guess I'm being swayed, but I just wanted to bring you through my thought process about having consistent lap times while others may be falling off seems to be far better. Okay. Yeah. I may have changed my mind while you were saying that. When you read this question, I interpreted as every driver in the field having no tire fall off. So that's what led me to that. But, but okay. But, but what you said also makes sense because if you, if cautions just come out, right, you can, other teams are still going to pit, put on fresh tires. That advantage can be erased. If, if there's, let's say, a second and a half fall off. Well, I mean, I'm, I don't know because then <laughs> a driver can just lap the field and then none of that would matter, right? Yeah. Like nothing late would matter. We, so, we, we should have asked Jacob for, uh, for some conditions here, but <laughs> we're just making them up now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then I guess if, yeah, then, yeah, then never mind. Just let me take the driver that can lap the field on old tires. Yeah. Uh, assuming that, yeah, because if, if you can just get the field to lap down, then you can probably kill the race. I don't know, 50 laps before the finish, then yeah, I would, then I would probably take that as well. That, and, that's pretty good, especially on a track with like massive fall off. Yeah, that'd be huge. And again, I don't want to undercut strategy. Again, my, my initial, you know, very shallow thinking was with stages, it takes away strategy calls or at least more than it used to, right? Because there, there, there aren't those opportunities like we were talking earlier in the episode for, for the 100 lap run or the 200 lap green flag run where you could, uh, you know, short pit, long pit, all that stuff. There aren't as many of those anymore. That was my initial, albeit shallow thought. But as people have pointed out to me, uh, you know, and do a little research, 
there, there is plenty of strategy now when it comes to the stage points, David. You know, do you go in? Do you want to, do you go in? Do you pit early and forego the stage points so you give yourself the track position? I mean, depending on who you are and how you're running throughout the season, those are legit strategy calls that can make or break your playoff run, that can make or break your playoff seating or your advancement in the playoff. Those are high-pressure strategy calls created by the stage uh, racing format, and I, I shouldn't uh, poo-poo those, if you will, because strategy is of the utmost importance even more now with these stage points. Yeah, and well, but there's also different motivations within the field like if, if there's if there's a mid-pack team they're gonna know nowadays going into the race whether they have a realistic opportunity at the win and if they don't then they should be playing the stage point game no they're not gonna run out front no they're certainly not gonna lap the field none, none of that cool stuff is gonna be available but with stage points it allows them to play another game in just accumulating whatever they can get in hopes of landing a playoff berth because, you know, as we've discussed, uh, the days of a lot of parody seem to be over. I don't know that we're going to have a situation where there are 16 different race winners through the first 26 races. That seems like a tall ask. So points are still deciding those bottom spots in the playoff bracket. And as long as that exists, as, as as long as that is the points format, then the focus on stage points is important because those top 16 positions at the at the end of the year pay a lot of money. And that's kind of how this whole thing keeps going. So, uh, no, you're right to point it out. And um, that's a great hypothetical here by yeah, uh, by Jacob. I'm going to have to just keep thinking about that. I think I, I think final answer, I want to take the driver. But he also didn't state – the lap times that the driver has. Yeah. Because if they're just, they're just slow consistent. as molasses, then I don't, yeah, I don't want that. Okay. Good, uh, good stuff, Jacob. We appreciate that. Next up from Demi Boy Lovato on Twitter. Uh, interesting question. Why did Jack Sprague never make it past the truck series, David? Um, now for some context here, J- uh, Jack Sprague did race another series, the Xfinity series, and he did some cup racing. But I think maybe the bigger point is that, is that he's looking at, David, is, uh, you know, Jack Sprague, you know, by 2001, he had three titles in the truck series, more than 20 wins. But the the, the sustained success, the ladder climb, it wasn't there. Uh, I don't know if he can put any more context to why did Jack Sprague never make it past the truck series? Yeah, so he he did get a promotion. It was after the 2001 championship. He was with Hendrick Motorsports. I mean, he had he had great equipment, but more importantly, he had a pipeline to the Cup Series that I don't know was probably clogged because Hendrick Motorsports didn't have slouches in the Cup Series seats. But they promoted him to their Xfinity Series ride in 2002. He was 37 years old when he got this promotion. It wasn't a bad season. Uh, obviously, Hendrick Motorsports, it's good equipment. He did get a win. His only Xfinity Series win came at Nashville Speedway. He finished fifth in points after a disastrous second half of the season. This is one of the most peculiar Xfinity Series seasons that I can remember. He led the point standings after 17 races. He averaged a 9.4 place finish during the first half of the season. He averaged a 19.8 place finish in the second half of the season. I mean, what? That doesn't, that doesn't even happen. He got a cup series job anyway 
in 2003. His sponsor on, uh, I think in, in maybe his final year or two in trucks and that one year in the Xfinity series was net zero. If you can remember that they had a good relationship. They went with him. It was a ride with Haas CNC racing. They would later become Stuart Haas racing, yeah. but it was not, it was not the caliber of the Stuart Haas racing we're familiar with. Old net zero. Uh, he lasted 18 races in the Cup Series. He finished 14th in the Daytona 500. That was his best finish. Beyond that, he never finished uh, better than 22nd. But yeah, so that was that was it for him. And Alan, I've thought a lot about this. I've thought a lot about other drivers. Uh, I've you know mentioned to you Ron Hornaday, Timothy yep. Peters, yep. uh Jack Ingram was a guy in the Xfinity series and then even nowadays uh maybe maybe Grant Enfinger is a guy like this but I consider it to be a form of typecasting which is something that happens a lot in Hollywood. So Let's think about this. There's an actor named Jason Alexander who spent <laughs> 10 years playing George Costanza on Seinfeld. And after Seinfeld ended, Jason Alexander, of course, wants to still be an actor and get work. And he couldn't because there were casting directors all around town that thought their audience would always assume he's George Costanza. And to a, a, a similar degree, so is Kramer. I think he did some things that maybe took him out of the running for <laughs> yeah. some parts later on. But yeah. I, I, I do think, Alan, that there is that, that typecasting exists in NASCAR. We, we look at Timothy Peters, who was, who's, who's good in the truck series, but we just view him as like, oh, he's a truck series guy. And then nothing more. I mean, he had some, uh, he made eight starts for Richard Childress racing, n- pretty nondescript, but you know, in order to, to move up the ladder, he's going to need more. More than eight starts in a car that he's never seen before. So yeah, I mean, it's a head scratcher. And you see, so you see guys like Grant Enfinger, Ben Rhodes, Alan, Ben Rhodes, I ranked him fifth on uh, my prospects list this year. He's, he's good by, by every measure. And he just turned 23. I hope he isn't viewed as some truck series lifer because that would be appalling. I, I feel strongly about his ability and I've been outspoken on the lack of consistency from Thorsport Racing with all four of their drivers. Only Thorsport would win a championship without winning a race. Of course that happened. But for for somebody like a you know Grand Finger Ben Rhodes, I don't know how they're not being taken more seriously or being treated as something other than a truck series driver. And, and, and maybe Brett Moffat too. I know he won cup series rookie of the year competing in, in back marker stuff. And he's established himself as a very good truck series racer and a truck series champion. But will he ever be considered for something beyond the truck series? I don't know. Yeah. It's weird too. I mean, uh, what about a Matt Crafton type? Yeah, and yeah, that's a perfect modern day. I mean, example. a, li- a life, a lifer in the truck series. Nothing wrong with that, but you got to imagine, or you know, at what point does an owner no longer look down, or is it not valuing those truck wins? Is there, you know, is it a money thing? You know, obviously, money plays sponsorship plays so much into it, but at, at what point is Matt Crafton winning these races and a, and a cup owner or any owner not looking down and saying, "Hey, there, there's talent there," or has that time expired? Or yeah, it's an inter- you know, racing can be a weird business. I don't know why that doesn't happen. 
Yeah. So, okay. So, if we, okay. So if we put ourselves in the mind of Matt Crafton, he probably doesn't want to hop in a Rick Ware car or a premium car in the cup series. And that's understandable, right? He, he, he makes a good living doing truck series stuff and he's competing for race wins and he's the reigning champion, right? But what if, I don't know, is it would, would Grant Enfinger be considered for a mid pack cup ride? Like would, would JTG Doherty, let's say it didn't work with one of their two drivers, why isn't Grant Enfinger or Brett Moffitt or somebody like that on at least the, the, the consideration list? Because those are names that, I mean, look, I, I keep my ear to the ground. Uh, my colleague Jordan Bianchi is, uh, very good at just drumming up news and breaking news. You work with Bob Pockress, who does the same. We know the names that are considered for Cup Series rides, and these guys aren't among them. And that it, it is puzzling because if they're good, they're relatively young. Why wouldn't they be considered? And there's just this chasm in perception. You know, we've, we've had that conversation before, but why someone who appears viable at their level can't move up to the next one? I, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why Ross Chastain is given um, more of a look than Brett Moffitt. They're similar in age. Uh, they've raced against each other very hard. I mean, they were, I would say, the, the, the two most exciting drivers going into the playoffs last year in the truck series. One receives all the respect and benefit of the doubt, and Moffitt doesn't, frankly. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, that'd be a question to ask team decision makers, why do they think the way they do about some drivers? It, it's, um, it is curious. You know, the, the same thing exists on the open wheel sports car side. Uh, a lot of the, the young kids that eventually compete in either one of those two genres, they start out in open wheel and they race in road course and somehow they are identified as either being, okay, you are a future IndyCar guy and you are a future sports car guy. And, and you can't mix the two. You, if you're, you know, if you're smart, you're a sports car guy. If, if you got big balls, you're an IndyCar guy. And I refuse to believe that an IndyCar driver can't be smart or a sports car driver can't be brave. I, I don't. I don't know why that's such a big difference. Just the same as I question why is there such a gap in the perception between similar talents, seemingly. And finally, we will end with Alan from Charlotte wants to know, David, do you have any early stats on Garrett Smithley's iRacing peer performance from Virtual Homestead? Oh, dear goodness, no. <laughs> I threw that oh, one in there on you. Surprise, was David. He, was he in the race? I didn't I didn't watch the race. Was oh, he, first of all, was he in the race? Yes, and he performed really well. He was leading uh, not with not much long, uh, not much left in the race. I think he you know, finished top five or something. Uh, good ending between Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Denny Hamlin, who came on at the end after saving some tires. But, yeah, no, shout out to Garrett Smithley and Timmy Hill getting some TV time and some uh, some talk about uh, because of their iRacing skills. So 
I wanted to throw that to you, David. <laughs> but even no, though does, does this get them a reprieve with Kyle Bush? Are they cool now? Like, well, this, I, does they, this... let me tell you. I mean, Garrett Smithley outperformed Kyle Bush by a ton in in the I race at Homestead. I don't know what how much that does for his street cred, but. A lot of people saw a lot of Garrett Smithley on Sunday because a lot of people tuned in. David, nearly a million people watched on Sunday uh, on FS1, um, watched the iRacing world, NASCAR world come together. We know it's not real. We know it's not, you know, it's not NASCAR. It's not real racing. We know what it is, what it was. And I think the broadcast was spot on. And, uh, it was, it was just fun to come together, David. It was fun. Everyone, you know, was joining on Twitter. It was like getting together with your friends again and not thinking about the world for 90 minutes. And it was a good time. And, uh, Garrett Smithley got some attention because of it. I'm glad Garrett Smithley had a good day. I mean, he, he took some flack last year during the Cup Series playoffs. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's coming around. Maybe it's good karma. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm glad I finally stumped you because you don't have any peer projections. For, uh, <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. <laughs> well, good stuff. Great questions as always. David puts out the bat signal and you guys answer. So I guess that makes you guys the listeners. You guys are Batman. So that's pretty cool. Uh, don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. If you like what you are hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. I know, I promise you, that stuff really does help spread the word about our podcast. So does word of mouth. So tell your friends, especially if they need a new podcast to listen to during some of their downtime, uh, have them choose this one. We notice all the feedback and it is certainly appreciated. If you have questions, you know we're going to answer them, so send them on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, I know it's a little light right now, a little uh, odd time, but what do you got? What are you working on? This week on The Athletic, I wrote about Stephen Nassie. And for those who don't know about Stephen Nassie, he's arguably a bigger lightning rod in the racing world than Kyle Bush. He's a consummate winner in the super late model ranks, but he's a firebrand. He once tried to fight his entire pit crew. Uh, it's, he's, he's an interesting <laughs> character, but I spoke with him. I spoke with Steven Nassi and talked to him about a lot of things, namely what he wants to do. He's 24 years old, going on 25 this year. He says he's not really chasing the glitz and glamour of NASCAR, money and fame, do not appeal to him. Uh, he likes it in the short track ranks, and he explains why. Uh, his is uh, an interesting personality. I was excited to chat with him, and I think uh, that profile on The Athletic this week turned out uh, pretty swell, so please check that out. Good stuff. Um, still not much going on in my world, I hate to say, just waiting for racing to come back. Obviously, we have some on FS1, so I'm learning a little about iRacing and a lot about just getting together on Twitter and talking racing with all you guys and listeners. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun last Sunday, and we are back this Sunday in uh, virtual Texas for some more racing. So uh, bring the same energy. If you're listening to this and you watched last week, uh, the iRacing on FS1, bring that same energy because it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun just to talk and, uh, you know, BS with each other and have a virtual tailgate and just enjoy it. So it was, some, it was something to do on a Sunday. And uh, I hope you join us again 
this Sunday in virtual Texas. So uh, thank you for listening, as always. I, again, it's a weird time in the world, not much racing to talk about, but you had great questions, and uh, it gave us uh, a little research to do and uh, conversations to have, and I hope you continue those. Reach out to us on Twitter. Uh, but for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. This has been Episode 54 of Positive Regression. Stay positive, everybody. We'll see you next week. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. 